and welcome to the December edition of Hopeful. Joining me this month is Tiara Atai, the founder of Solidarity, a soon-to-be charity that sells t-shirts to raise awareness and raise money for legal aid for refugees in Greece. She's a really fascinating person. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you will too. Just a quick heads up, I'm really sorry about the sound quality in this one. I'm in a new flat and there was a call to prayer about halfway through, so it's all a bit echoey and dodgy, Um, but I now know, so it will not happen again. Um, So yes, without further ado, here is Tiara Atai. So yes, the positive news story. Um, So mine isn't actually from this week, but I really wanted to talk about it because I thought that it didn't really get that much media attention, Mm -hmm. it's probably... The highlight of the year for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the beginning of October, the British Court of Appeal decided that the British government had acted unlawfully in the way it was treating unaccompanied minors, um, predominantly in Greece, Italy, and Calais. So there's this Dumps Amendment, the 2016 Immigration Act, which mm-hmm. means that 480 places were saved for the most vulnerable children so they could be transferred to the UK. Mm-hmm. But, as was discovered, a lot of these children, when they were rejected, they didn't get written decisions, um, they didn't get the grounds, like detailed grounds for their rejections, and it was discovered during the process that this had been the case because the UK government feared that if the children had you know, kind of detailed grounds for refusal, they might bring a legal challenge. And so, yes, indeed. So, health refugees <laughs> brought a case, um, and the Court of Appeal decided at the beginning of October that the UK government had acted unlawfully, and, which is great, right? Yeah, okay. that's brilliant. And I think what really made this story for me also was that, at least in my opinion, I think injustice normally occurs in inaction and in bureaucracy, in waiting times. Mm. And I think this is like a really great case to prove that, mm. like, a government doesn't need to necessarily have really bad malintent mm. mm. to act unjust, unjustly. Yeah, unjustly rather. Yeah. It just needs to be bureaucratic and like yeah. ineffective, and I think this is a really great case of showing like yeah. the real life impact that this inef- like inefficiency can have. Yeah, definitely. No, that's great, and it's it's so frustrating. I get so frustrated about how these things are just not like that's an amazing story. I didn't know about that. Yeah, <laughs> and I feel like well, you know I'm fairly up to date with the news and stuff, and it's so frustrating that that wasn't made a big enough deal of because that's brilliant and yeah gosh for sure and I think kind of legal aid is seen as something a bit unsexy and something that's not accessible I have this like real belief that like legal aid and like legal challenges have like real potential to change our society and to change the way that we see our societal structure Mm. and that's why I was so excited about this because hopefully this will also like serve as a lesson serve as a precedent for the way we treat asylum seekers and refugees in the future. Yeah, of course. So, um, obviously, Solidarity, you have founded Solidarity, which is amazing. Um, so I wondered if you wanted to say a bit about what inspired you to found it, why, what the most important things about it that you do that you think are changing um, the refugee situation. Okay, so Solidarity is essentially a student-led fundraiser, hopefully soon to be a registered charity, um, and we raise money for Legal Aid for Refugees. And I founded it in early February 2017. And at that point um, at Cambridge, where I studied, there were just so many protests constantly. And I remember this being this like, big student discussion about like, the role of protest 
the echo chamber, the echo chamber I remember first learning that word mm. um, in early 2017 and this idea that there's so much frustration and so much enthusiasm and willingness to act but how can we channel that into something sustainable and useful I remember especially hearing a lot about volunteerism yeah um, so I was kind of thinking about like how can I channel this into something that will really make a change and having volunteered a lot as an interpreter um, for legal aid NGOs in Greece, I felt that like, legal aid was this amazing potential. Mm. Because if, for example, everyone has access to legal aid and everyone who should get asylum gets asylum mm. in the first instance without having to appeal, without having to you know, get these like extensive medical documents to prove X, Y, and Z, yeah. like these camps are not going to be so full. Like people yeah. aren't going to be traumatized for living in these awful, like godforsaken conditions. Mm. I remember thinking like this is sustainable change and we've got so much enthusiasm and like this drive to do good amongst the student population yeah. and I remember thinking that like what about a symbol that you just carry in your day-to-day -day life, a t-shirt, yeah. something as simple as that which expresses that emotion, expresses that feeling and then behind all of that, that t-shirt has done good because mm -hmm. it's made those funds that have really yeah. helped people get out of that you know, limbo and get out of that like terrible uncertainty mm. yeah I think it's so interesting because I think two things you've said there I really um, res really resonate with me the whole concept of people want to do things people want to make the world better and I think there's this massive conception of students and young people as being not wanting to change and being this sort of like uh, this whole idea of millennials just wanting stuff from the world and not giving anything back and I think it's I find it very frustrating in that I want to make things better, I want to make the world a better place, but there's this assumption of my generation that we don't care, when actually I think that the youth of today are, care the most and they want to make things different, like we've seen with the protests um, on the London Bridge recently with all the environmental stuff, that's a majority of those people are young people, and actually then you, what you've done is you've created something that you can channel that into something positive and shape that will actually make a difference. Because I think so often you, you see these awful things happening and you want to help, but you don't know how. And mm. I think that's you're just amazing because you, you found a way for people to be able to help. I'm not sure if I'm amazing. I'm very flattered about that. But <laughs> <laughs> I think what's really exciting also is that students have this luxury of time and energy which they can channel. Yeah. Like, for example, I think about my brothers who are in their mid-30s and working really hard and, you know, one of them has a family now. And I can't see him like spending time trying to talk to people about legal aid for refugees because yeah. like this poor guy doesn't have time. Yeah. He's, he's a busy person as it is. Yeah. So I think students, we have this like really unique chance where we've got this you know, like energy and this kind of extracurricular time slotted into our university yeah. education, yeah. right? That it's so ripe mm -hmm. for the picking. Yeah. And also, I, I don't know about you, but when I started university, I just felt like there were ideas just constantly in the air. Yes, 100%. It's the, you meet all these new people and everyone's got, I found that I sort of arrived and everyone was from a different place and everyone had a different experience, but we all like wanted to make things a bit better and you talk to them and you'd be like, oh my goodness, that's such a great idea. And then you, everyone can collaborate on those ideas because everyone's just, it's all about talking and discussion and I love that about it. I really do. Yeah. For sure. And sometimes I think that if we manage to change people's perceptions of like asylum seekers, refugees, I think a lot of those perceptions are based on discriminatory ideas that we've accidentally assimilated, right? Mm -hmm. And we can't hope to be a completely racism-free environment. Like mm -hmm. obviously we'll always have preconceptions yeah. that are, 
you know, a bit unsavory. Mm-hmm. We managed to just like change those perceptions amongst the university population. I mean, like these are like the leaders of tomorrow, yeah. the politicians of the tomorrow, like the academics, the activists, and I just hope that if we create this refugee-friendly environment, even on the basis that, you know, we just say, okay, now it's a given, everyone should have access to legal aid. Mm-hmm. That in itself, I feel, would hopefully make some big change in the future. Yeah. One thing that's also great is that it's much more sustainable because obviously there's lots of people discussing the refugee crisis and, and the concept of being like, we need to get them food, we need to get them blankets, we need to keep them warm. But actually what you're doing is giving them a future because it's all very well helping them in the situation that they are in now. But actually what we need to do is get them out of those situations and, and find a way to then actually develop a home and not be in a camp anymore because I think it's just, it's, it's awful. But we... And obviously we need to address the short-term problems, but in, in a sustainability context, we need to extend it and you know think about how they're going to operate in the future. Oh, for sure. And I think that the way that we treat asylum seekers in terms of their legal status, and that, in fact, going back to the case brought against the UK government, mm. that, for example, these children didn't get detailed written grounds for refusal, that, I think, leads to a real sense of mistrust. Mm. And that's something I really see amongst asylum, uh, asylum seekers population, asylum seeking populations, rather, mm-hmm. whenever I volunteer amongst them, and that people try and find alternative solutions. Because if you know, you've got a state lawyer, but you've never got their number, they only have yours and they call from a blocked number, you feel like, I have no representation. Right? Yeah. There's no one on my side. And then you start seeing people thinking like, well, this country, doesn't want me. This country doesn't even want to give me the baseline of um, what I deserve and what you know my human rights say I deserve. And then people start looking for smuggling, or they start looking yeah. around and trying to disappear. You know, just giving up on legal status. Well, I don't care about that. I'll just start working on the black market to feed myself. And then I think it just leads to absolute chaos. Yeah. And it's terrible because I just think of this like lost generation, like people who have felt so left down by their country of origin risk everything to get to a host country they think will be safe and then feel even more abandoned. I, I just, it just feels like a lost generation to me, it's terrifying. Yeah. So where can you see solidarity going in the future? What are your plans for the next few years? So what I'd love solidarity to be is to kind of be the middleman between the energy and enthusiasm among students mm-hmm. and the amazing work that NGOs and charities are doing on the ground and especially kind of supporting a sustainable approach to the refugee crisis. So this would manifest itself, for example, in offering grants and financial support to NGOs at like, the start of their lives mm-hmm. so that we can, at that kind of pivotal moment, give them the push they need so they can mm. really focus on the work they're doing and not trying to scramble for money. Yeah. Another thing I'd really love to do is um, to be able to give grants to volunteers who are working in legal aid and maybe let's say someone has been there for six months they've just graduated from law or whatever they can't sustain themselves for another six mm-hmm. they could approach us and provided the project is appropriate mm-hmm. um, we can maybe fund them for the next six months so really trying to fund a sustainable vision for the refugee crisis and this would take basically be two-pronged rights like the funding so that the NGOs can do the work they desperately need to do mm-hmm. And by also changing the way that we see volunteering, changing the way that we see our participation in aid distribution and in access to legal aid also. Yeah. Oh, that sounds, that's just, it's just, just brilliant, really. <laughs> Honestly, so brilliant. I just think it's amazing that 
you you see all these people. T- I feel a lot of people talk the talk at uni about like wanting to do something, and but you've just you've gone and done it, and it's like it's international now, isn't it? You've got people in yeah. universities in other countries. The amazing just, thing about that was also they approached us. So it was like you heard of us? Yeah, that was kind of almost terrifying. Oh God, I really need to pull my socks up now. And <laughs> well, it's, it's one of those things I think, especially studying Arabic, is you meet people from other unis, and everyone's just done. So everyone's involved in solidarity in some way, which is. It's a pretty impressive legacy to have um, so early on in your life, really, isn't it? I don't know. It, it doesn't feel like that when I'm up at 1am, desperate trying to write some emails. <laughs> but, uh, thank you. Compliments like that when you have me go, keep going. So do you think you're going to, once you graduate, do you think you're going to take it on as a full-time mission? Or what do you want to do? I'm not sure, to be honest. And I, part of me thinks that like what made Solidarity work was that it was a fresh vision. Yeah. And so I don't know whether someone would be better to mm. take my place and maybe inject their vision and their ideas mm. into it. Um, but certainly I think I've now passed the stage where I could, I mean in my first, maybe in the first one and a half year, years of Solidarity existing, I kind of envisaged it more as a project mm-hmm. that would maybe accompany me through my university yeah. career and then afterwards it would be something we'd look back on and think, oh that was great and we had a great time and we did some good. Mm. But now I feel that we've invested so much time into it and not just me you know we've got this amazing national team that work so hard at all hours um and it would just feel such a shame if we let that yeah drop yeah well i think all these um things that you think of with the investing in ngos and investing in people is really good because some of the work i've done with ngos is i've seen that they've had corporate sponsorship or been given money from certain places which all comes with a sort of um they've all got their own idea of what they want the NGO to do and because they're being paid by this corporate sponsor the NGO then it's kind of got a responsibility to follow through and um, it frustrated me a lot because I felt like a lot of the stuff that did need to change wasn't being changed because it wasn't in the interest of the corporate sponsor mm-hmm. and so I think actually having charities investing in NGOs that are doing really great work is so important because it means that they've got much more freedom to do what they think is right I think one of the biggest problems I have with international development is that very rarely do people listen to local grassroots on the ground NGOs who actually know the community and know what needs to be done. And I, I get so frustrated with these. When people talk about the refugee crisis, they talk about it as if they know what it's like. And it's like, no one's been, like, unless you've been and you've met people and you have talked to people and you understand what people's lives are like, you don't really know. And I think having organisations like Solidarity changing things um, with knowledge and also then just supporting people that know what they're doing is so important. Investing in people that have that knowledge is the, I think it's how you solve these things really. Well that's what we're hoping to do and we're also trying to bring a bit of that close to home so we've recently launched a Mythbusters and infographic series. Mm. We realise that a lot of the stuff around the refugee crisis is legal and often in like international diplomacy or politics and it's jargony there's so much jargon so mm-hmm. what we try to do is we try to address a topic a week in our infographics mm-hmm. and pull apart a myth a week using statistics like using analysis and just putting it in simple talks so that people can at least understand it yeah and i feel that the refugee crisis like a lot of people's enthusiasm has sometimes been misplaced because for example a classic um misendeavor i see is people really wanting to contribute and just filling a boot full of aid supplies mm. and then going and distributing them. And I always say afterwards that that night there's been a fight at the camp because only 50 people got 
some new shoes mm. and it's winter and it's snowing and you know there's another 250 people in that particular area mm. and then someone's shoes got stolen and then someone pulled out a knife and you know you have to realize that this is a beast that you're dealing with that you have no idea it's so far from home yeah. like this is somewhere that's lawless like people are traumatized it's they're living in inhumane conditions like you need to really know what you're you yeah. know the, the environment which you're working with mm. And so I think it's so important to, as you say, invest in the NGOs who have that kind of local knowledge yeah. and experience and familiarity with the situation. Mm. And that's something we're hopefully also trying to achieve with the long-term volunteers because you know you get that knowledge after a certain amount of time. It's inevitable. Mm. You're not just going to get it on your first day. Yeah. I and mean, you want those people to stick around and like help others and instruct them and be their mentors. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it segues quite nicely because I was going to ask you what you think um, the general population and what we as consumers of everything can do like in small ways to help ease the situation one thing I do all the time and I'm still undecided whether it works or not is I message my MP all the oh, time yeah. and part of me thinks that if everyone if they saw injustice decided to hold our political representatives to count mm-hmm. to account maybe we could actually really achieve something I think yeah. what's terrifying is the idea that we've got this I mean, it's terrifying and inspiring, right? We've got this population that's actually probably quite sympathetic to really basic demands for human rights and legal representation. Mm-hmm. But this is untapped. This is like some like, untapped source that we somehow need to like get access to. And if everyone in one given week wrote a letter there and be saying, like, I'm really worried about the situation in X, mm-hmm. whatever, like, there would have to be at least some sort of political response. Yeah. Yeah, because I do think... I mean, I personally, so I live in a um, a constituency where my MP has not got a great... I mean, I very much disagree with almost everything that he's ever voted on. Um, and I know that I still have a sort of mentality that nothing I... Say, I mean, I'm constantly emailing him, and I've actually got to the point now I'll get, like, personal letters written back to me because <laughs> I'm so annoying. Um, but whether I will actually ever be able to change his opinion, but I think that's so true what you're saying is actually if everyone did it then actually it would have to because there would be this snowball effect in that if you're constantly getting asked about something you have to do something about it because you've got to have a response to your constituents yeah and ultimately I think what we're what as solidarity what we're asking for is nothing radical we're Mm -hmm. saying like everyone should have access to what the law says they have access to which is legal aid and everyone should have the right to present their case in the best way possible that really does justice to the reasons why they left their country. Yeah. That's not even a political demand. No, that's just, just basic human rights, isn't it? Exactly. That's the thing that's so frustrating is it, we all act like some people just act like it's that we're asking for the world when it's not. It's just people to be able to have an education, to have food and water, to have somewhere safe to stay. And yeah, gosh. One of the common um, counter arguments I get thrown at me is well, where do you expect all this money to come from? And I always think that's not a well-thought-through argument because legal aid is actually really cost-effective. Like, yeah. <laughs> getting it's, much more, it's much more sustainable and cost-effective than constantly buying food for people, isn't well, it? Exactly. Because if, if you give them legal aid, it means you don't need to keep giving them food and you can stop doing one of those things and then it's like a one-off thing, really, isn't it? Exactly. And I think also you're... I mean, these cramps are, camps are really overcrowded mm. and I think that's... I really believe that when we don't have institutions, when we don't have like a sense of law or a sense of order, 
everything goes haywire because the feeling of like limbo and uncertainty is really damaging to people's mental states. Oh, yeah. And I think if there was like, if the camps weren't as crowded and there was also the sense of, okay, I'm here, the conditions are bad, but at least I have this lawyer who listens to me for 20 minutes a week and explains what's going on. Yeah. I think that would really help people's mental states. And then we wouldn't have to have this like awful game of every week someone commits suicide or every week someone gets stabbed or every week there's, you know, prostitution or drug dealing or whatever. Mm. At least we would have the sense that we're not having to invest so heavily in kind of like emergency response. We'd have the sense, I, I really believe that we would have a sense of calm. Mm. And often when I've asked people, you know, whilst doing research, like, what would have really made you feel that, okay, I've made the right decision in mm-hmm. coming here. People say, um, if people had explained to me what was going on. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, I think, in, in all parts of life, everything is much easier when you understand what's going to happen or how things operate. Like, I think someone once said to me that the, you're, you're only really scared of two things, fear of failure and fear of unknown. And I think those two things are basis for everything we're ever scared of. And actually the uncertainty is the worst thing in the world. I know in, in anything, if you're not sure what you're doing next week, you feel a, a sense of stress and you can imagine that on a much bigger scale and like, how long am I going to be here? And it's that you can't put down roots, you can't reassure your children on when they're going to be able to next go to school, you know, because you don't know. And actually that's what legal aid is so good, is it, it gives you the sort of yeah it's going to be rubbish for the next year but then we might be able to do something and actually even if you know it's this much time that's better than still being in this limbo isn't it oh for sure and something i see a lot is that people will smother themselves because they're just terrified that nothing's going to happen they're not going to get anywhere and the greek government's not on their side or whatever and i can only speak for greece because that's where my experience Mm -hmm. lies um and i often find that people will smuggle themselves halfway through their um, claim to asylum mm. and that is really bad cost efficiency for the EU <laughs> I always think that, that I mean like the casework has already been assigned the interview data has already been booked the room has been booked the interviewer has been booked everything's been booked and the person doesn't turn up because they're already in France mm. and then they're going through the same procedure in France yeah. so I think that if we just invest a bit more in Greece in terms of like the legal situation and people say look okay you know we know that the conditions are bad but in you know, it says here that on the 15th of February 2019 you're going to be having an asylum interview mm-hmm. what does that mean let's prepare you for this mm. I think people would probably stick it out yeah yeah I think that's so true and what do you think so I kind of start this on the basis of looking at um, how media affects our view of the world and how positive news stories can sort of change our general view of how the, how the world is a better place than we think it is what do you think about the general coverage of the refugee crisis in the media? And all, in the, just the general media, what do you think? I actually have the same criticism of the left and the right in this. Interesting. And in that I think that we have this really stereotyped vision of a refugee. Mm-hmm. And in the right, that manifests itself as like a money-hungry, rapist, only single men for some reason, yeah. <laughs> even though half the uh, world's population of refugees are under 18, but okay, whatever, you forgot <laughs> about that. Um, this really like nasty radicalist who's going to come and steal your children and convert them to, God forbid, Islam, etc., <laughs> etc. Et and on the left, we have this vision of a Syrian. I don't really hear much coverage about any other nationalities, really. Mm-hmm. Like a Syrian who 
is a refugee, not an economic migrant. And I think actually on the left, and I'm more criti- critical of the left, obviously, because they're the ones with the good intentions and mm. I feel more affinity with them. Mm. Um, I think that by focusing so much on, no, 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 they deserve asylum, they deserve asylum because they've gone through this awful thing and they're Syrian and et cetera, et cetera. We're creating this picture of like the good refugee as yeah. opposed to the bad refugee. Yeah. And the bad refugee is one who maybe didn't have a heroic story, maybe isn't good looking, <laughs> maybe they're actually quite ugly. Mm. Um, and maybe they're not really good at selling their story or anything. But actually, you know what? They have a, there's, there's a legal imperative for that person to have asylum. Mm. And I think this is something we could work better on in the left by saying like, you know what, this is a legal imperative. We can't just um, support the ones who are like, the good refugees and ones who have this great story and are comfortable and cuddly. Yeah. I think this is quite concerning. And something that we've also fed, which I think is a bit concerning, is this feeling of like the economic migrant being this mm. dirty and like dark underbelly of the refugee crisis. And I actually think that the lines are really blurred between the two. So for example, if you're a member of a persecuted minority. Let's say you take Afghanistan, there's a minority there called the Hazarov, they're Shia, they're very, um, they're very much the victims of the Taliban. If they are unable to get a job, unable to get a job because, because of their ethnicity and they have, they have very Turkic features, they really stand out, mm-hmm. and therefore they leave Afghanistan on that basis. And then in Turkey, no one will give them a job because they don't have legal status. So them and their family are starving on the street. Mm-hmm. I'm always like, is that an economic migrant or a refugee? I mean, obviously there's been discrimination mm. and persecution based on their race, but there are economic factors. Yeah. And I don't blame economic migrants. If I was really struggling to make life for myself in my country, I would leave my country. Yeah. I would do it. All yeah. of us would. Yeah. And I think we're fueling this kind of anti-migrant narrative. At, we're, tr- we're trying to be pro-refugee, by saying like, no, no, refugees really deserve it. And therefore we're fueling this anti-migrant narrative yeah, that comes cool. and bites us on the bum. Yeah. So I think that what we need is like more focus on like legal imperatives, and also just like a more nuanced description of like what it is to be a refugee. People aren't refugees, they have refugee status. It's not an identity, right? Mm. It's not a, I've never met anyone who calls themselves a refugee. Mm. But people are seeking for the status and I think we should just focus on this legal imperative that should be fulfilled. Yeah. Yeah, it's a basic human right. We have to respect these people as people, regardless of what's happened to them. We have to get to the root of why they've come here and then understand what you can do to help them. I think that's a very interesting point. That's so true. And what about just the general like lack of fact in the media? <laughs> that's exciting. I mean, <laughs> I'm trying to take it as funny now. Like, yeah. Um, I don't know, I, I really believe that like knowledge is a massive tool for change mm-hmm. and I think, again, what we're demanding is not radical, it's mm. not shocking, it's just asking states to you know, follow up to the legal imperatives that they have upon them. Yeah. So and I think the media could do a better job actually explaining things in simple ways. I mean, I'm not a journalist, so I don't really have this tool myself, mm. I'm lucky that I have a great team who has this ability and has this talent. But I think the journalist could actually go a lot way in taking apart a news story and really trying to explain it, trying to get to the root of it. Yeah. I think people actually enjoy that. I mean... Yeah, well, it's, it's nice when something makes sense, isn't it? Because <laughs> when you talked about jargon yes. earlier, it's so true in that a lot of newspapers and social media outlets just use all these words and actually 
I mean, I've got friends, and they're like, I really have been trying to understand this concept, like, like Israel-Palestine or the refugee crisis, but there's so much extra stuff going on that people talk about that you can't actually really understand. How did this happen? What You know, the facts of the situation, because we're just filling it with all these extra words that no one really understands, and I think that is a real issue that we need to address, because how are people meant to vote or, you know, make good choices if they've not got the correct information or the correct knowledge or have heard from someone who's experienced it all knows what it's like I think I don't really know how one does changes that but I suppose it's just through sharing people's stories I think that's what's great about your Mythbusters is that is that it's, you're sort of working both respects as you're actually helping people but you're also educating people this is what we're hoping to do, right? Like looking at the student population, thinking like, how can this population make change? And I think one of it is just if everyone has some sort of basic acceptance that you know what legal aid is probably a good thing, we should probably just roll out for everyone. Mm. Yeah, I think that would make just a world of change. Yeah. Um, could you tell me three things that make you hopeful? Right. I've got two that are purely escapist, and one that's very cynical, so I'll... Oh, okay. <laughs> temper them with one another. I think one is, like, just being in nature. Mm. So I live in London. I live near Hampstead Heath. Lovely. Yeah, so it's great, and it just kind of reminds me that there's something bigger than us, like our petty issues, like our inability to understand, our inability to just damn well get along. Mm-hmm. Like, there is something so much bigger and so much, you know, just so much more vast than us. Mm. I find that really comforting. And uh, second of all, music. I used to actually be quite a serious musician. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose maybe I feel that music is like an expression of like the higher plane in us, like what makes us civilized and makes us decent, and it's that part of us that actually has the potential to do good. Yeah, I also love what I love about music is its ability to bring people of all backgrounds and cultures together. It's one of the things I love here about um, the music night maestro is you've got people of all different backgrounds all just playing together and it's just it's one of those things that really just bonds people doesn't it because everyone loves music at the moment um ever ever since they discovered that i used to be a really professional singer Mm. and i used to sing um operatic style Mm. every time we have guests which is almost every night it's tiara's time for performance (laughs) (laughs) amazing yeah and they all stopped smoking and then they shut the window and they're just like, sing. And how brilliant. <laughs> and what's hilarious is that like, I'm saying something like French or Italian or German, which they don't speak a word of. Yeah. But afterwards they're like, okay, I really got that at this point you're feeling sad. At this point, like, which is the most affecting point of the piece. And it's hilarious like, yeah. how transcendent it is. Yeah. It's almost uncanny. And we always laugh about it like, wow, when did you guys learn French? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Which is great, yeah. Oh, and my third thing. Uh, that inspires me and gives me hope is that when people do good things they don't have to do mm-hmm. I'm not talking about like big organisations because I think big organisations often have people who are self-interested and like are interested in their own career and their own track record mm-hmm. and them. but I mean like this small stuff like people who give blood yeah like whenever I go to for example centres where people give blood and I get the impression like I just see like normal people and I'm like I'm sure they don't have like a platform where they boast about it no they're, they're just, just doing it yeah exactly and that really gives me hope yeah I that's such a that's so true that's so lovely it's when you just see people doing things for no other reason than that they just want to do something nice 
Yeah. I think I'm all I'm all about like the random acts of kindness thing, and just trying to think of a one small thing you can do each day that's nice that has no purpose for you, no benefit, but it's just makes someone else smile. I'm also all about complimenting people that I don't know in the street. Oh, yeah. I think that is the best <laughs> thing to, you can do. If I like some something someone's wearing, or I think they look nice, or I think they just said something funny, I will tell them. It sometimes comes across a bit creepy. But I also think, how nice would it be if someone came up to you once and like, you look really nice today, and you seem happy. Like It's, it's a nice feeling, and it's yeah. warm, and I'm, I'm a big proponent of complimenting people even if you don't know them. I think it's a, it's a good way to go. Yeah. I think especially in this day and age, I think we've been really schooled on the assumption that like everyone is bad unless you get to know them. Yeah. I, th- I think we should operate on the fact that everyone is good. I think I had an argument with all my flatmates the other day because they were telling me I was crazy because I fundamentally believe that deep down everyone is good. I'm not saying people are 100% perfect because no one is perfect, but I also don't think anyone is completely and utterly bad. I think that we've all got goodness in us and we can all get it and it's just about working that goodness out and doing things that make it stronger over the bad stuff. Yeah, I agree. I, I think the worst thing for humans and the most... Um, insightful characteristic to like evil and bad bad doing is like a sense of instability and a sense of lawlessness mm. and I, I actually think that a state of nature would be a state of war but we mm. don't live in that state of nature anymore like we mm. just have to accept it mm. and so I think that people do have this like really conflicted nature and as you say I think goodness incites goodness yeah and I mean I think you look at Anytime something truly awful has happened, I mean, I always think of um, after the Manchester bombings, the community just came together and people looked after each other. And that to me is the epitome of humanity is that, yeah, deep down we all, we all want to look after ourselves and we all have to, we all are constantly very selfish. But also, if something awful is happening, we do care for our fellow human being. It's not, we, everyone just comes together. Like, I just thought, all these different religions coming together and working together that normally are at odds and I just think, yeah, the world it can be good. Yeah, empathy is a powerful tool. Oh, definitely, yeah. And so what about an inspiring person? Okay, so, the promise is not a plan for solidarity, but actually <laughs> the person who designed the solidarity shirts, um, who was someone I met on kiosk when I was working as an interpreter there, mm-hmm. and he had a really tough life, I mean tough, he... Him and his wife and nine-year-old son, who moved from Afghanistan, well, not moved, that's a glorified word, had, you know, like, smuggled themselves and been on the road, you know, shoeless, etc. Mm-hmm. We've got to his home, got to Greece. I think what really inspired me about him was his belief that everything will be fine and justice will prevail and something will happen. And he... He'd had a tough life. I mean, he had been tortured by the Taliban to the extent that he wasn't really... He'd lost most movement. Um, and his wife was really traumatised by this because she'd been left alone for a couple of months with her son and she felt that she and her son might be taken and she didn't know where her husband was and the whole thing was very traumatising for both of them and their son, I'm sure. Mm. But I think what I found so inspiring was that he had this real belief that if I'm polite and kind and if I'm patient and if I work at this, I will get... Sam's able to sit, and I will be able to provide for my son and wife, yeah. and I'll find a way. And what I found amazing was that whenever we would have meetings with him, and they would bring their son, obviously, you don't want to leave a nine year old just by themselves in some like <laughs> massive camp. Um, 
most nine-year-olds I saw, or, you know, children, whenever we're having meetings with lawyers, would just be, like, running around, doing whatever. But this father was like, no, you're out of school, but that does not mean your education's going to stop. Mm. And so they would write poems together in the evenings. Oh, how wonderful. Yeah, and then the kid would have to dictate, like, write them out from memory during these meetings. And so every half an hour I notice he would like stop his kid and be like, that's the wrong word, don't you remember what we said? Or like, <laughs> watch the your spelling or whatever. Oh. Um, and that, that, those poems actually went on the tote bags for last year. Oh, wonderful. But I just thought they were such an amazing family that they always maintained the sense of like purpose, direction and hope despite everything. And I'm sure that came from a place of faith also. Mm. But at the same time it was incredible to see just this incredible sense of human perseverance. Yeah, wow, wonderful. And what about a highlight from your week? Okay, I, this is like a bittersweet highlight. We're, we're writing our papers for, uh, to hopefully gain charity status. Um, and I mean, understatement say I'm really tired. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, yeah, charity status is always a fun one, isn't it? <laughs> mm, exciting, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but hopefully you'll be fine, inshallah. But um, what's been amazing is seeing that, like, what an incredible team. I'm just so blessed to have. And everyone's kind of doing their bit. Everyone's joining a section. And it's great to see how people are bringing their own ideas to look, look like Solidarity's vision to what they're mm-hmm. writing. Mm-hmm. And I think we're discovering a lot about what Solidarity is yeah. through what we're writing. Like, oh my God, I never thought of that. And like, wow, that really links to this. And it's incredible to see even people who've only been with us since, like, July have, like, really got into the heart of what they think that we should be doing about like sustainability about and it's great to see that like together we're really finding a lot of answers and yeah that's definitely been the highlight of my week definitely even though i'm so tired (laughs) (laughs) it's worth it in the end for sure yeah (laughs) when you get charity status because i believe it it will happen it'll be fine (laughs) i hope so i mean if if it's going to be for anyone it should be for them i mean i'm really blessed to have such a great team so they'll shout out to them Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming and chatting to me today. Yeah, pleasure. Um, Thanks for me. This will come out around Christmas, so if people want to get their Christmas presents, so that you sell online, don't you? Exactly. So it's Solidarity with a T-E-E at the end, not a T-Y, dot org dot UK, and you can buy some goodies on there. Yes, definitely go and check it out. It's all beautiful. Oh, I love the new designs. Yes. It's Very great. exciting stuff. Check them out online. Yes. Wonderful. So thank you so much, Tiara. No, absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Hopeful. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, as ever, thank you to Josh Christopher for composing the sad music that goes alongside it. Um, please do feel free to go and give a rating on iTunes um, to make me really popular. It'll be great. Um, and also go check out the Instagram um, because I've got plans for the new year for that. So it'll be really good to give that a follow. Um, and also check out Solidarity's um, various social media pages and websites. Um, it would be a great thing to get involved with if you are at university. So yes, that's all from me. I hope you have a wonderful winter break and I will speak to you all in January.